It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching, and thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to all of these interviews. We're wrapping up another season here, and I wanted to be sure to let you know how deeply I appreciate and we appreciate the time you've taken to listen to the set of interviews that we're now completing. This has been such an education for me. You're going to hear a little bit more from me later on about that topic, but I'm just thrilled and honored with the openness and the insights to have been on the receiving end of them, both from the folks that we've interviewed and the listeners who have shared their time with us and the listeners who have taken time to chime in via email. So thank you for listening and thank you for being a part of the Preachers on Preaching community. It's been nothing but an honor. We had a last minute cancellation this week. So uh, as we wrap things up, Neil and I thought it might be kind of fun to uh, turn the tables And Neil, the essential irreplaceable Neil Ellingson, who is our editor, interviewed me. So you get to hear a little bit about how very seriously I take myself as a preacher, as well as some thoughts I've got about uh, what it was like to speak to all these illustrious people. So thanks again for listening. You can always reach me at preachers at christiancentury.org. This is not our last episode, however. Next week, we will be releasing yet another greatest hits episode, this from the second season of Preachers on Preaching, so the last 15, 16 episodes or so. If there is something from one of those episodes that you think is essential listening for future audiences, please do chime in. Drop me a note and let me know. We'll be sure to include it. All right. Thanks again. My gratitude is deep. And now, here I am, Matt Fitzgerald. Here's the thing with Light Rock. The highs may be rare, but they are high indeed. Meanwhile, the lows are entirely forgettable, unobjectionable. Well, that's what I used to think. And then this evil song came on the thrift store speakers, Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. I hope, I hope you don't remember this song, although it sounds like some of you might. Abra, Abracadabra, I want to reach out and grab you. Every time you call my name, I heat up like a burning flame. Typical sexy mediocrity. But then, right toward the end of the song, Miller croons a verse whose misogyny is so lunk-headed it becomes powerful. Listening to this song, it is as if a poem written by Hugh Hefner hit you over the head with a bag of hammers. I felt cheaper, more coarse, just by hearing it. That's the thing with evil. It isn't always obvious. It slips and it slides, it insinuates itself. Light rock is the least objectionable thing in the world. That's why it exists. It's the least objectionable thing in the world until it isn't. Consider the unobjectionable things the devil tempted Jesus with. Turn stones into bread. Well, Jesus' people were poor and they were hungry. If he could do something so seemingly insignificant as relieving the cost of groceries, people would flock to him. Doing so seems helpful and expedient, not wrong. But Jesus saw that it was evil because he knew what the devil was up to. Gain a following for the wrong reason and no one would understand the cross. The devil knew this. He wanted to suppress 
the unusual, beautiful truth of the cross. So I'm going to ask the question, just like, why did you start this podcast? What, what motivated you to make Preachers on Preaching? I think it was for me as a preacher, it was a good thing to be, um, I mean, I, when I was younger, when I was in seminary, I, I wasn't really paying atten- attention to sermons whatsoever before then. I remember hearing a few in adolescence that I either liked or felt skeptical of, but it wasn't really deeply influential. Um, in seminary, I heard a variety of preaching, but again, not a whole lot, other students mainly. So it wasn't like I was hearing from seasoned, you know, wonderful preachers. I did on a few occasions hear professors preach that just blew my mind. Um, but I think it was a good thing for me to just be on my own for the first eight years in my ministry, preaching, you know, 48 Sundays a year. It helped me develop my own voice. I wasn't taking anybody anybody's voice in. It was just me kind of in isolation. And I do think that was good for me, but then you reach an end where that stops being good. And one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast selfishly was I want, I I was feeling myself tired of my own voice at the end of my own sort of like insights that I'm going to have as I reach the second half of my own life. Like I want to learn more from other people. I want to, I want to hear other voices. Um, and be inspired by where other people are coming from and learn how they're doing it as I felt myself starting to run out of gas a little bit. Um, and so the the people that we've spoken with, I really feel blessed by their generosity, sharing their experience, and their good preaching. I mean, most times I've interviewed somebody, I've listened to two or three of their sermons beforehand. Um, and And really the thing that's gotten me the most, though, beyond any particular techniques or insights or passages is simply the the dedication that all these people and we've talked to people coming from a pretty broad variety of perspectives right but they I've been really struck by the similarity like the deep deep similarity that an evangelical preacher in Canada and a functional panentheist unitarian in Minneapolis are both bringing a, an identical nearly identical dedication to the task and at some level an identical faith, right? Do you know what I mean? Faith in the importance of what they're doing, um, faith in God, even though they might articulate it, God, who God is very differently, faith in the fact that God needs to be proclaimed, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's been like, I honestly feel like that will carry me for the rest of my preaching life. As I sit here and um, the tables are turned, there's a temptation for me, and I know that I'm going to live into this temptation, to, I can see myself about to commit this, the sin I'm about to commit, but there's a temptation to regard this as a sort of, val- as a sort of valedictory lap, like, uh, now I want to sit here and talk about what works for me and what I do well. Uh, the reality is, I am not a uh, 300 batter from the pulpit, um, and over the course of my time as a preacher, right up to the present moment, and this will be true in the future too, I find preaching to be um, humbling and to be sometimes humiliating, and that I have stood in the pulpit and looked out at people I am boring um, more times than I would you know, ever wish would happen, and I have inflicted things on listeners and parishioners from the pulpit um, in ways that I regret. And I just, I find preaching in general, you have to have a big ego to want to do it, right? Put on a fancy robe and stand up in front of people. But um, part of the reason I want to always remind myself that my job is is to point toward the cross, not toward myself, is because 
of the number of times that what I'm trying to do hasn't worked. But I don't want to sit here and spend the next hour talking about what I've failed at and what I've done wrong, because we all know that. You know, we all know where we've screwed up. So part of the value of these interviews for me and listening is listening to people talk about what they do well, and I want to do that. But I want to couch that in a sense of, um, let's be real, Mm-hmm, <laughs> there mm-hmm. are many, many times where it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. But um, but actually, that leads me actually into a question, which is someone once asked me, um, who came to my church, asked me, what did you do when you were younger that made you able to do this now, able to speak in front of groups, able to sort of be engaging in this weird situation where you're talking and people are listening? Like, you know that? Malcolm Gladwell idea, like 10,000 hours. You yeah, know, like, yeah. did, did you have anything like that when you were younger? Did you talk like that prepared a, you for preaching or from sort of a performative place? Yeah. Or, 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 or anything. No, I, um, well, because my dad was a minister, I saw, um, the ease with which he, he was a public speaker and he went into it. So I think, and my mother's a professor, she's retired now. So I think both of them were like, up in front of people and had comfort with that. And just growing up in church, you see various people standing up and speaking. So I think like as a thing to do, that was um, not out of the ordinary as something to watch. I'm seeing that with my own kids now who see me preach. And like when it's time for them to give a speech, I don't think like in school, they have to memorize something. They're not necessarily inclined um, for the same bad psychological reasons that I needed to be seen and validated. They don't have that yet at least, but, but they're really, they're cool with having to memorize a poem and stand up in front of their class and say it uh, because they see me do some version of that. For me, when I was an adolescent, I, I was at a place in my life where I really needed to be seen. I needed to be validated externally for family reasons. And um, so I got into theater in like eighth, ninth grade. But when I got into high school, this is really what answers your question. When I was in high school, I was the, um, the like MC for um it wasn't just like pep rallies in fact we never, I never even heard that term but once every 3 weeks maybe maybe even more frequently the whole school would gather and kind of have a little pump up session and do skits and stuff like that and um I emceed that for 2 years and that's really where I got like by the end of it quite comfortable um speaking extemporaneously writing little things down and trying them out and when I look back on it I stopped as soon as I was done with high school, like never in college. I kind of got that out of my system, but I never did any kind of like, you know, improv or any kind of public speaking. I never picked up on that again. But looking back, I definitely felt like, oh, I can stand in front of people and talk. I did that when I was young. That that's very similar to my experience, too. Like I, I wasn't I think there can be a tendency to be like, oh, the things we do when we're that age isn't real. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like real work on oneself begins maybe in college or later but I think you're right that that I had a similar thing like in college I didn't do anything like that but when I was younger I had all these weird opportunities to be in front of groups talking and it probably wires your brain in a certain way oh I think so I mean I think in the same way like I can still at you know 45 years old knock down jump shots like I learned how to do that when I was 15 16 years old and those those things stick with you yeah um you've alluded to over the course of this podcast being a preacher's kid and how that shaped you or or nudged you in a certain way but it's not from what i've pieced together a simple narrative of oh my father did this i want to too in some ways there was a little bit of a back and forth a rebellion attraction 
Yeah, can you, can I mean, you talk I, about that a little. Oh, sure, sure. I'm happy to tell that story. Um, partially because it, for me, it was a painful experience, and um, not out of rebellion, but but a painful experience nonetheless. And and I, it makes me um, annoyed with or frustrated by really rosy call narratives because I feel like like the the truth is more complicated. Now, I've also learned over the course of these interviews that it's not always the case. Some people really do have, I think, pretty positive, right? Like people have positive experiences of everything. You know, some people have become wonderful people out of conflicted family of origin stuff and some people don't, you know what I mean? So, right. so there's no one way and I've learned that too. But for me, the way, and I think this is true for more people than just me, um, it was out of, it was out of, out of loss and pain. So my father was, uh, a minister and a good one and a good preacher too. And, um, um, and a disapproving parent in a way that to me felt, I mean, a loving parent, a good parent, he was there, you know, provided for the family was a, was a, a wonderful man in many respects. Um, in almost every respect for me as a kid, one of the things I experienced coming from him was disapproval. And I think that that was probably generational. I think when I talk to friends who are my men who are my age, a lot of men experienced that. So it wasn't like, you know, I'm not, I want to be really clear about this. It wasn't abusive. It wasn't traumatic. It was just a consistent thing as a child. Like you're not performing at the level you ought to be performing when I was like in fifth grade, you know what I mean? Which right. is a little ridiculous when you look back on it in retrospect. Like I remember my dad saying to me when I brought home some abysmal report card as a fifth grader, um, I have a job to do. And if I don't do my job, we don't eat. You have a job to do. And if you don't do your job. And I remember thinking like, what in the world are you talking about? You know, like it just didn't compute. So my relationship with him was good, but I had this heavy strain of I'm not doing it. So he died when I was 13 of cancer. And um, when I realized he was going to die, I um, it clicked for me that I needed to satisfy him, that I knew that those things he was pushing me toward and, and, and were at and was asking of me were good things and that I couldn't be just kind of this spaced out, you know, slightly recalcitrant, willful kid anymore. I needed to bear down and, and, uh, perform in the way he was talking about it. Pay attention in school. So, um, so I, I did, I went at it. That's actually when I first started doing that little kid theater stuff too, cause he was into it. So I was wanted very much to please him. So I had this, it's a, it's like the central sad memory in my life, but I have this memory then of midway through, I can't remember. It would have been eighth grade midway through eighth grade, getting my first in my life report card that was going to be pleasing to him, you know, like really good and on my grades. And I brought it to him and I took it to his bedroom and he was dying and he was whacked out on morphine and, you know, it was hospice in the home and it was too late. Like he mentally couldn't see what I was trying to show him. And I remember him sitting up on the side of the bed and I had the report card and I was showing it to him and, uh, and, and I, and he didn't get it and he knew he couldn't get it. Like it was just, you know, he knew it was important to me and he was very loving, but he was like, I don't understand what you're trying to tell me. And, I think almost in that moment, um, that's where I was called to ministry. And for a long time, I thought, well, that's, I was called to ministry for sort of purely psychological reasons, you know? Okay, I will show you. I will do what you did. I will be who you want me to be and try to please you posthumously, you know? Um, and, and and so for a long time, I kind of, ex when I was questioning why I do this, um, 
and my enthusiasm started to wane a little bit, I thought, well, it's not the voice of God. It's not, you know, this kind of classically Lutheran vocational thing. It's me trying to make my dad happy, but I'm locked into it and I like it. So that's cool. You know, like I, I, I'm, and, and only in recent years, maybe in the last five to 10 years, have I started to think that's all true, but that's how God works that God works out of, right? I mean, if I really believe in Easter, and I do in Good Friday, um, there's the template for how God might reach into a person's life, not bringing something wonderful out of something really, really hard. And I think that's how I wound up as a a minister, as a preacher, no doubt. Wow. So a couple things that that helps illuminate for me, having also pieced together your theological and craft of preaching um, trajectory, I think it makes a lot of sense that you're drawn to making the liberal Protestant tradition a little less lopsided. That, like, you know, so I listened to your sermon about sin, for example, and one of the things you point out is that we as liberal Protestants don't like to talk about sin and, and judgment and, and what one could call, uh, I mean, Eric Fromm co- talked about God's love as having this fatherly side and this motherly side again, fifties gender essentialism, yeah. but, but that, that to really understand what is meant by God's love, you need to understand love as judgment and love as mercy and forgiveness, but that one or the other by themselves is not enough. Like just mercy alone. Um, you know, your love, no matter what, like whatever you do, no matter how well you do on your math test, I love you his idea is that that alone is secretly terrifying to us because we, there's nothing we can do about it. And that one way maybe God loves us is to challenge us or call us to something. And, and I've noticed that in your, I mean, in See, your yeah, approach a little yeah, bit. It's funny. I've never put that together with, with, I've never thought about um, that understanding that I have of God, which I totally have. And I feel like I got it from reading Luther, you know, mm-hmm. um, that notion that without a thorough, that law, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to beat up on Luther's law gospel stuff, but I, I, it works for me as a hermeneutic to read the Bible through and to read my own life through. And I do think that without a sense and an awareness and even a, a fear of God's expectations, uh, God's mercy becomes, you know, unnecessary. I, I was thinking the other day, like trying to think of a new way to say this. And I thought, you know, Without a sense of God's expectations, mercy is a little bit like um, washing down a piece of pie a la mode with a milkshake. You know, like mm-hmm. it's so much goodness that it becomes unnecessary. I don't want any of it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but I've never thought before. That's interesting. I've never thought before that I maybe internalized and learned that from having a very demanding, stern father. Right. Well, who, but who, you in your in your story, you just that you just shared, you say that you did come to see a lot of that as, as a kind of love, even though it couldn't necessarily feel it that way at the time. At the time, no yeah. doubt. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was loving. And I think without it, uh, I mean, I know it was loving. Now that I'm a parent, I understand it much <laughs> more clearly, too. There's nothing, there, you know, there's, 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 for me at least, there's no better way to forgive your parents than um, having a kid of your own, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that even when you said you were kind of writing this off as a, as a immature understanding, like you wanted to please, like, but doesn't the Bible talk a lot about like how people, people are always trying to please God, like pleasing, pleasing 
someone is not inherently shallow. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like that, like interviewing you, it's like, I want, oh, I want him to, th- I want to think I'm doing a good job. Like, and it's like, is that, is that just from my ego or is like, is maybe, can that call us to something higher? I don't know. That's interesting. That's good. I, I like to think about that. You know, one of the, it's funny. They say one of the reasons that I, I don't, I'm not seeing this as much, but like the Alban Institute literature from at least a decade ago was saying a lot part of the reason that liberal Protestant churches are not doing well is because we don't ask anything. We don't have expectations. We don't tell our people what they ought to be doing or giving. And that's, I think, reflected straight out of our theological conviction that, again, that God's mercy is this freely given gift that is everywhere, that grace is universally available, that it just comes. It's, kind right? of like, it's there to please us in a way. It's- exactly. There, if that's true, then why should the church be telling you what to do about anything. And it was funny. I was talking to a, a, a person here one time and she said to me, um, cause I was trying to figure out, you know, how can we articulate a higher set of expectations for our church members? And she said, well, for instance, we should, she said, we should. And she said, my, I know more clearly what my gym expects of me as a member than I do what St. Paul's expects of me as a member. And this is somebody who's been here for 20 years. Wow. That's tricky. I mean, it makes me think what you're trying to do in some ways is question some very basic underlying frameworks of liberal Protestantism, but maybe also it maps onto political stuff a little bit, which like, so we, we had feminism, which is a good thing. We critique patriarchy. We're, we're, so we're, we're skeptical of like authority and, and the strong father. But is there a way, I mean, how, like, how, I guess I'm very drawn to what you're saying, but how do we hold up these these values that have some underlying worth without right you know because i've noticed that you you can you tick off a lot of ucc people sometimes with your with your writings because they assume oh he's like right just going back to this old thing and i think i don't know i mean i don't know the answer to that question i think that definitely in my experience of the mainline we have let go of so much christian vocabulary that we've nearly rendered ourselves inarticulate. Um, and, and, and I firmly believe that um, we can take back an immense amount because Jesus himself is politically radical. And so I'm not really worried about um, bringing the patriarchy, bringing homophobia, bringing this like kind of soul killing, infantilizing, arresting old school religiosity into the church by going back deep into the well that we stopped pulling from. And it's not a concern of mine. I think that it triggers for people, especially people who are coming out of um, conservative church backgrounds and have found the main line as this wonderful, open, loving, accepting exception to the conservatism upon which they were raised, it triggers for them. And I've learned, I got to be careful about that. Uh, It's easier in a local church setting because people know me, they've heard me preach, you know, six out of 10 sermons that are hitting liberal Protestant themes and affirming the beauty in our tradition. So then when I go off about the fact that, you know, evil is a real thing, it's not going to, for them, trigger that. But if I take that and then share that with the wider world, which I think is what you're talking about, right? Some little piece of writing that says, hey, liberal church, evil is slithering through existence and you need to watch out. I'll always, if I do that, you know, the people who are grace, grateful, gracious enough to read it, I'll always get back from them. Like, 
you're not UCC. What, you know, and, and I mean, I kind of enjoy it. Right. But has this some, is this something that you've come to through experience, trial and error in the pulpit and, or is it more like you've always wanted to do it and you're figuring it out the whole time? Like, well, I think in uh no, I mean, when I look back on what I was doing when I was right out of seminary as a preacher and I had the good fortune of, um, you know, preaching 48 Sundays a year in a small church right away after seminary. Um, but, but when I look back on what I had to say, then it was, um, I, I think that I was much more, um, intense theologically than I am now. If anything, Mm. I think I've, I've been tempered and, and, or just more sensitive to the diversity of, of, of experiences that the people that I'm preaching with are bringing to church. Um, I, I wasn't much of a Christian before I went to seminary. I didn't really, you know, I, I, I thought about God, like Stanley Harawas says, as this sort of ultimate vagueness. I wasn't paying much attention to particular Christian language. I probably was, you know, functioning as a Unitarian in some ways, mm-hmm. theologically, um, but not like a good Unitarian. I wasn't going to church even. And, <laughs> and I think what I did in a naive way is in seminary, I learned a certain way to think about being a Christian. And it wasn't like they were teaching it as this is the only way, but it's the one I kind of identified with and grabbed, which was this post-liberal George Lindbeck, you know, Karl Barth through post-liberalism right. kind of way. And I think I kind of naively assumed then when I became a preacher, this is true. This is what it is. Like, and my job is to present this, is to preach the gospel in in what I've come to realize now is that's not a predominant way of understanding things, certainly not in the UCC. Um, I didn't get, I didn't know that at the time actually. Mm. And so, and in a way it was good because I had this, like I was coming at it with this like highly Christocentric um, understanding narrative based, theologically conservative approach. I also, you know, I'm a progressively oriented person politically. I was pushing the church to become welcoming to gay people and all these other things. I'm not a literalist, but, um, but I was pushing this, like, you know, what I've come to realize is a sort of like, what's the right word? Uh, uh, a minority opinion theologically, <laughs> right? As if it were self-evident. And what was good about that, I was reading boatloads of Stanley Harawas back then too, and what was good about that was it was right around 9-11, and I was able, because I was relying upon Harawas and the gospel to and Jesus, right, to... Um, probably in that order, unfortunately, but, <laughs> but to, um, to preach a pacifism after nine 11. And when I look back on my old sermons, I feel, I feel good about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't because of my own convictions. It was because of the, you know, the, the perspective that I was grounded in. And so sometimes when I start to second guess my theological orientation, when it doesn't work for my congregation, when I feel greater resistance to where I'm coming from than, um, you know, when I want to please people and my relative theological conservatism isn't pleasing, I, I will look back on those years and think to myself, it was true then. Like when the stakes felt really high, um, it was true. And so the stakes might not always feel as high now, um, but 
And it wasn't just true and on some plane of idealism. It turned out to be true from a sort of realistic perspective too. It was the wrong thing to do. Politically, like, you mean for us to go to war after? Yeah, that. like it just it also didn't work out. Yeah, <laughs> right, know? and that shouldn't be what judges. Right, that that should not be the arbiter of Christian truth claims. But right, I, yeah. But well, but that's something I want. I do want to ask you about. I mean, I don't know if it relates directly, but it's something I I'm puzzling over and. Um, you know, I know that the book, the four pages of the sermon was really influential for you. Yeah. And we had Paul Scott Wilson on and I went out and bought the book after I heard that. And that it really helped orient you and pin this amorphous thing of writing a sermon down. Yeah. But one of the things he said is the fourth page is where's grace in this world, mm-hmm. right? So there's, where's, what's the problem in the text? Pro- grace in the text, problem in the world, grace in this world. And some of your sermons do that beautifully, um, but they do it in a way that is strange. They do it in a way that the circumstances of the world of life are not radically different, but it's something like um, you're in a scary store in your, in your Easter sermon uh, and the store is still scary. The environment's still weird, but you see this boy blowing bubbles or this family displaced from Katrina is still displaced, but they're holding hands like, you're finding grace in the world, but it's different from, like you just said, it's not like everything working out necessarily. Can you, so as someone trying to write sermons and trying to find grace in the world, how, how do you do that? And how do you, um, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, well, that's interesting. And I mean, that's a great question. The, um, I haven't really thought about it in those terms, but, but I definitely feel like, um, I guess to begin with that, my experience of grace and and how I think it is um, named and revealed in Scripture and the Gospels in particular is not a solution to our human problems. Um, I think in a grand and cosmic way, the gift of grace, the revelation of Christ, the promise of eternity, uh, these things are are indeed an ultimate solution to our problems. Um, I really like this corny saying I read somewhere years ago um, about eschatology. Uh, I think it was in a greeting card, though. Um, in the end, everything will be all right. And if everything isn't all right, it's not the end. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's but, great. but I think in the meantime, that is our lifetime, um, grace is present to us, given to us, but it's not going to stop, you know, stop us from having accidents, stop our world from being this incredibly violent and sad and destructive place. I was visiting yesterday a a parishioner who's dying, and he wanted to talk about his awareness of kind of holding up the violent, the ongoing violence in Chicago to the dramatic violence that just happened in Orlando. And he's sitting there talking about this. He's a really wise man. And he's talking about this and just kind of holding these things together. He worked in communities in Chicago for his lifetime that are really stricken with violence and thinking about what happened in Orlando and what it's going to mean for these families and all these things. And I'm looking at him and he's like literally dying. I mean, not in the moment, but you know, sooner rather than later. And I, and I thought to myself and I said to him, death is awful. It's, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when it happens in the natural course of things. This is an elderly man 
dying of a physical disease. That's going to happen to all of us one way or the other. And it's a horrible thing to have to go through. And, and, uh, Frankly, a, nearly a traumatizing thing to behold as somebody who's been in that, you know, a professional who's been in that situation a lot. It's awful. And then we sit there and do that to each other. You know, we, it, it's, it's insane. And I don't think that, and the world is like, you know, so wrecked and so corrupted and so fallen. And we are so bad. And I sit there, I sit here as you do too in the city of Chicago and like reap all these benefits from living in this amazing place and, and from having grown up in a social location that allows us and encourages us to. And meanwhile, you know, a part of the infrastructure, a part of the ecosystem that allows us to have that experience, the experience we're having is kids killing each other. Right. I mean, it's some weird way in some weird way. You and I would not have the life we have if that wasn't happening. There's an economy to the whole thing. I really believe that. And I ought to be out there protesting a gun shop right now. I think the world is really hard and always probably going to be so. And yet there are and I find them as moments rather than like a change in reality. It's a, it's moments of disruption and, and moments of um, incarnation moments of uh, some sort of like barrier being broken through. So I feel emotionally and really, and, 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 and religiously spiritually, I definitely feel, I talk about this a fair amount in sermons. I definitely feel like there is a, another reality that is just beyond this one, um, like kind of pulsing there. And sometimes you can feel those pulses. You can feel that beat. You can see that light. And even though the world, as I just was trying to describe, you know, it's it, the world is hard and horrible and we're complicit in it, it if not victimized by it. Um, and yet this other thing is there and it loves us. And it doesn't necessarily permeate this world, although sometimes you see that it does, but it does break in. And so my, I guess, my, my understanding of how grace operates is that, um, or as a preacher trying to proclaim grace in the fourth page of the sermon, it's to find moments where I see that happening, where the brokenness of the world and the love of God are sitting side by side, and the love of God is so much more powerful than the brokenness of the world that it can make the brokenness of the world bearable um, and relativize it and um, even make it inconsequential because the good is so beautiful. Um, even though we can't stay in the good forever. Like that, that story I told about seeing this little kid blowing bubbles, right? I tried to get all poetic with it and say, you know, I stepped into the bubble, Mm -hmm. you know, like the bubble was floating up into this beautiful sky and, and I jumped into it. And I I think that's true at some level. When I went back and you use way more poetry and personal experience than this kind of stern Bardian, scripture like like the thing that you're pushing ideologically or like as a as a program if you if I, if you had just heard you talk about that i would have assumed you just kind of reading the bible passage and you know like maybe barking it a little but but so i was kind of shocked when i was actually listening and 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 reading some of your sermons by how much you're steeped in these other these other ways of preaching um so I, what i wanted to ask you is why is it important to you that a sermon be beautiful that the language be beautiful. Why, why does that matter? 
Well, that's interesting. I th- I want to answer that, but but I want to answer maybe a question that was um, under that. Sure, yeah. If you don't mind, no, you're totally. Being, yeah, yeah, you're being very kind, but <laughs> but that's. I think that's definitely like just a straight out contradiction and inconsistency that I have <laughs> as a preacher. That those the, the some of the theological concepts that I espouse, I'm contradicting every time I preach, <laughs> right? I mean, I do use a lot of personal experience in the pulpit. I find myself endlessly fascinating. So, uh, but, but you also have a million stories about other people's lives. And I, I would posit that paying attention to our own experience can help us, help train us to pay attention to other people's. Oh, Maybe, I, th- I, I think so. And I mean, I definitely try to practice that, um, most of the time, I mean, nine times out of 10, I try to practice that, that rule that if you're going to talk about, if you're going to use something from your own experience in the pulpit, as an example, um, play the fool. Don't present yourself, you know, in a, in heroic light or even in like as an exemplar, um, you know, and I, I definitely try to, to, to do that. Be self-lacerating even, right? At least self-facing. One of the reasons that I use a lot of those kinds of stories about my own life and other people's lives uh, is because for whatever reason, one gift I have as a preacher, just that I have as a person that I can use as a preacher, is I have uh, an ear for anecdotes. And I, I remember this stuff. I remember moments that I witnessed when I was working with... Um, developmentally disabled people 20 years ago, they stick with me. Like, and I feel like, um, okay, if God has given me that kind of memory for these moments that I've experienced, and then my job is to try to tell a story, um, I'd be kind of dumb not to use that gift. Right. right? And, and, um, and be, and, um, and I definitely believe that we run the risk of if, if, if we are going to preach anecdotally um, and then we go like looking to either invent anecdotes or find them from <laughs> books we've read from, from things in the news rather than from this, the day to day lived reality that people are having that, that it, it, it creates the sense that it's not quite real. And so if I'm able to, as Christian Wyman says, you know, you use the, you use the personal to illuminate the universal. Um, and I think that's true. I mean, and, and the universal is, again, the way grace operates in the world. So if I can either from my own life or from things I've witnessed as a pastor or just as a person um, lift up a story that is real, um, that I'm definitely like glossing through a, a Christian lens, um, that's, gonna, that's better, right? That's like a lived example of it. So the, one of the things I always come back to is this moment I had a few years ago where, um, I, and I've written about this, but... I, I went to see a family right after um, the the father in this family had died. He'd been in hospice in their house, and, and he died. And they called me, and I went to their house. And it was like me, his widow, their kid. I'm sure this evoked some stuff for me because I'd lived through this at some level. But I mean, I've seen it a lot, not a lot, but you know, a fair amount of times as a minister. So anyway, it was me, the widow, their teenage child, another kid who was in college who was Skyping into the whole thing, which is kind of wild, and then a friend of theirs from church. And we're all sitting there, and it was like, you know, we're kind of waiting for the um, funeral home to come take the body away. And and it was like taking forever, you know, like, like you know, normally when I make a pastoral visit, it's you know, half an hour to an hour at the most. And it, I felt like I couldn't leave until there was some kind of like transition. 
And it was like two hours. I totally run out of things to say, you know, and not that I was sitting there blathering, but you know, I mean like there was like the, it was just silence. And then earlier in the day when the, the hospice nurse had left, he had flushed the, all the medication down the toilet, which I guess is hospice protocol. I think maybe it's not, but this guy did it all the morphine and stuff and it clogged the toilet. So they had one bathroom and then the toilet's not working. Um, and so they called the plumber and the plumber came in into this, like he steps into this situation and it's like, you know, a minister who's out of words, totally grieving family, this really, really wonderful person from our church who, who knew how to just be present, but it's, we're all just kind of out of energy and grief stricken. And, and, and it's a, it's an intense and uncomfortable situation really. And this guy, he could have just gone right to the toilet, unclogged it and gone on his way. And he takes stock of things and then he goes around to each person in the room, like all five of us, and gives a word of comfort. And he knew the guy. He'd been their plumber. He'd met him before and, and gave a little kind of like testimony to what a good person he was, Condoles, gives condolence to the whole room, goes in, unplugs the toilet, and leaves. And so if what I believe is that Jesus comes like a thief in the night, right, if the story has taught me to believe that, I'd be insane not to offer that example up as a preacher, right? Jesus comes like a plumber at a deathbed. He comes like a thief in the night. He steps into your life when you do not expect him to be there um, and when you need him. So I, I got to tell those stories, I feel like. Um, and, 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 and it's rarely in the moment where you see them for what they are. You know, and so partially uh, one of the nice things about being a preacher is I get to like narrate these things um, and then see them. I don't experience God in the moment very often. I think it's always in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the importance of making a sermon beautiful, I don't know. I mean, I think I've, I actually, it's weird. I mean, I like to write, I like to read. And so when I'm as a reader, I'm going to appreciate and be moved by um, good beautiful writing more than something that is just flat. I'll put that aside. Right. And so the writers I really like, um, my, my favorite writer is, is John Cheever. And I mean, Cheever's sentences are insane. They're so beautiful. They just drip with beauty. Um, and so at some level, like I've taken, you know, I mean, how can you not Sort of like if you're going to then turn around and try to write something yourself, and writing a sermon is different, obviously, from writing a short story uh, or even a letter. But but it's still writing. So those, you know, what I mean, that influence is there of good writers. Um, but I have definitely have thought to myself before, as I sit there and like like agonize over a sentence, like get get over yourself. That's you're not. This isn't. This is a trans a transitory, momentary passing thing. And you don't need to sweat the adjectives as much as you do. Mm -hmm. um, so I've tried to not obsess over that as much as I've grown as a preacher. Do you think you're, so this will sustain your preaching. That's cool. Do you think like, are there things from these conversations that will change your preaching? Is it too early to tell how? I've definitely taken a few particular kind of like insights from people into the pulpit. I have, um, just for instance, I mean, it was a reaffirmation at some level, but it helped me understand it even better. Um, when William Willimon in one of our earlier interviews talked about um, 
preaching as 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 a time to play around in that was his metaphor the dissonance between the text and and the way we hear it between mm, the, the gap. text and our lives yeah. the, that gap and that we shouldn't try to close the gap we should sit in it and open it even um not try to solve it that that really um helped me that insight helped me as a preacher Mm. some of the more scriptural preachers that we've talked to have um i think helped me um in a chastening way um you know we talked at length in this conversation about looking for examples of grace and stories and anecdotes and narratives and i think my weak one of my weaknesses as a preacher is i can go down that road a long way and kind of forget about scripture, even though I'm espousing a theology that is very scriptural, right? And so listening to some of the folks, the the evangelical people that we talked to, but some of the post-liberal people too, listening to their sermons and, and hearing just how deeply scriptural they are and how closely they're sticking with the text and the job of exegesis and also are thrilling and exciting. It helped me realize like I can get a little too enamored of experience on my own and others um, in the pulpit and wanting to relate these experiences and, and I'm, and I can neglect scripture um, or just use it as a jumping off point. And so um, that's been really, again, in a chastening way. Like, yeah. oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and right. so I do think like, I wish, even as I said a moment ago, being in isolation on my own kind of helped me develop my own voice. I think that's really true. I think I'd be a better preacher today if I had started paying attention to other people's sermons a decade ago. That's why, I mean, I'm about a decade younger than you. So I feel very blessed that I've gotten to listen to all these people condensing some of their central insights of their career yeah. and giving them, it feels like a real gift. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.